All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. This afternoon, we have uh, Justin Dobbs with us. How are you doing today, Justin? Doing well, thank God. Yeah, doing fine. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Good to see you. Uh, and also, Scott Smelser is with us today. Uh, how are you, Scott? I am doing fine, but it says I need to ask you to start my video. Right, there we go. Uh, now, the audience may be disappointed it started. But... <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll appreciate getting to see yourself. Um, so we've got a topic today that we want to discuss, um, maybe on the, the shorter end of, uh, of length for things that we're going to talk about, but I think it's an important thing for us to address. Um, Justin, did you want to maybe kind of introduce uh, like what we're talking about and maybe some things you want to uh, get to with that? Yeah, sure. It, it's, um, it's not necessarily a complicated question, but it's one that comes up a good bit when I'm meeting people. Um, I'll just say what happened is a few weeks ago, uh, I was actually handing out Bibles to some people. Someone had given me a bunch of Bibles and I was handing out Bibles and they were ESV, you know, English Standard Version Bibles. And uh, as I, I was sitting by the homemade sign and the stack of Bibles, someone came up and said, now, is that the authorized version? And I've had the conversation enough times to know exactly where this was going. I said, well, this is, this is a copy of God's word. And he said, mm, let me take a look at that. Yeah, that's not the King James. And, and the point was that uh, if it's not the King James authorized version, then it's not really the word of God. Uh, and we had a brief conversation. And actually, I've been meeting with someone who knew this person sometime before. And so we've been studying weekly. Um, but it's, it's not an uncommon kind of conversation I've had with people. And, and on one hand, I really appreciate the desire that I think people have with this comment. They want to make sure that the Bible that they're reading from is accurate that it's dependable, trustworthy, uh, that this is a, a solid copy of God's word. Uh, on the other hand, it, it poses some problems for us that uh, I wonder if we can get into today. How do you have a conversation with somebody who has such a strong view? Is it worth talking through with people like that? Um, and if so, what's the best way to, to go about it? That'd, that'd be a question I would have today. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so, so we'll get to discuss maybe some different translations. Maybe talk a little bit about specifically the the King James version and kind of that viewpoint, um, and some manuscripts, um, some different things about how translations came about. Uh, maybe some opinions or, or some suggestions from the panel. Uh, what are some good translations? What are maybe some not so good translations? Um, so I don't know exactly where we want to start. I don't know, Scott. <laughs> Uh, start maybe with uh, some of the manuscript stuff and talking about the the source of translations, maybe from the King James and some other translations too. And, and let's maybe talk first for that about just that phrase, the authorized version. Because, you know, if you were standing there out in public with an unauthorized version, and there is an right. authorized version, there, there, there's some loaded terminology there. What does authorized version you know, King James authorized version means. Doesn't that just refer to the fact that King James had had given this translation committee the royal authority to access all the manuscripts they needed to perform the task of putting together an accurate English translation? 
Yeah, there were English translations before the King James Bible. There was uh, Matthew's Bible, the Cloverdale Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Great Bible. Um, uh, and before that, you'd have like Wycliffe and Tyndale, Wycliffe back in days before you had the printing press. And King James, who was the King of England, which also meant he was the head of what? Anglican Church. The Anglican Church, right. What's the main difference, going back historically, what was the main difference between the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church? Well, the Church of England got its start with uh, King Henry wanting one of his uh, marriages annulled, correct? And right. uh, when that permission was not granted him, uh, he was advised to break ties with the Roman Catholic Church for political reasons uh, and for personal reasons. Um, now, what, what all the differences are today, I, don't, I couldn't say, but it seems like in, in tradition, they are essentially the same, like their, their, their brother relationship kind of. Yeah. Today, among Roman Catholics, there's theologically liberal scholars and among Anglican churches, there's certainly theologically liberal churches uh, promoting things like LGBTQ, all, all kinds of stuff. And a lot of people don't even believe the Bible. But going back historically, the main difference was who was the head of that church in England. Before uh, King Henry, it was the Pope, the English church with its cathedrals and bishops uh, and archbishops were underneath the Pope. Since the Pope wouldn't let King Henry switch wives, King Henry switched headship of the church from the Pope to himself. So then... Which, which is quite the power move, right? Like that's, yeah. You, yeah. you won't tell me what to do, so or I don't want you to tell me what to do. I'll just get to play my own God. Yeah, and then the King of England had authority in England. King Henry dies later, King James is king, and he authorizes a new translation of the Bible. So it's not that Paul said, I'm authorizing one translation of my letters. It'll be the King James in 1611. It's not that God said, it's that the King of England, who <laughs> was the same king that kicked the pilgrims out of England. He said, I will harry them out of the land. The pilgrims did not use the King James Bible. He was the one persecuting them. Uh, they used, I believe, the Great Bible. Uh, but it's a good Bible. The King James is a good Bible. The per but the person who authorized it was a rather wicked man named King James. And so it's just helpful to get that out there. Any comments or thoughts on that before we go further? Well, just one, one comment. Um, I heard someone saying jokingly before about the King James Bible, if it was good enough for the apostles, it's good enough for me. Uh, and, you know, we, we laugh about that sort of thing because obviously the apostles didn't use the 1611 King James Bible. But this idea that, that really the King James is the only legitimate English translation, you, you begin to wonder what did English speaking people do in 1610, in 1609? in you know, 1541, like if, if they wanted to, to read the Bible, uh, if they wanted access to God's word, they would have had to have used something else. 
Um, so anyway, it's, it's just, it's an interesting conundrum. If you know nothing else about this conversation, uh, that just, it starts to poke at whether God wants people to be saved or not. And of course he does. So the King James can't be the only translation. But anyway, there are another a number of other avenues to take with this conversation, but that's just one. And another thing we might point out is this. In the New Testament times, <coughs> when Paul, Peter, and John are writing, do they use one and only one translation of the scripture, the various New Testament writers of the Old Testament? They use very often the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation, and sometimes they use the Hebrew. And so we don't have to decide there's only one version that we can use. And, and, and Justin raises an important point. If there was only one you could use, then what about the poor people before 1611? Which brings us to the translator's introduction to the King James Bible. Uh, if either of you have read that, sum up some of the points that those guys made. Well, because I've been looking at it recently, um, it's interesting, some, the translators anticipated people having questions about marginal notes in the Bible. So if you, if you have a, a 1611 copy, and, and I'm used to marginal notes in my Bible, I use the ESV a lot, and I'm looking down and it'll say, number one, or this word, or number two, some manuscripts, and it'll say what other manuscripts might say. And it turns out that the 1611 translation did the same thing, is there were marginal notes where the translators said, you know, we're not quite sure. Some manuscripts say this, other manuscripts say this. And in the uh, introduction, it, it says, um, and of course, this is very old English, doth not a margin do well to admonish the reader to seek further and not to conclude or dogmatize upon this or that preemptorily. For as it is a fault of incredulity to doubt of those things that are evident, so to determine of such things as the Spirit of God hath left. And again, it's just really difficult English. But, but he, he's basically saying that we wanted to make sure that you had marginal notes so the reader could make a determination for himself. What was the best reading, not us as translators? Yes. Uh, Jonathan, any comments on this so far? Um, no, I don't think so. Not yet. All right. And the, the translator's introduction begins with that they've been attacked. It says zeal to promote the common good should be welcomed, but it's often criticized, which was the case with them. Because in 1611, the King James Bible was not the old standby that grandpa used. It was a new or modern translation and so guess what people were saying about it why do we need a new translation and so they're answering all these attacks and they're saying what are you saying we didn't have the bible before and they're saying no it's just we're not saying you didn't have the bible before but if we can do some research and, and improve on translation and, and research that can be a good thing but they also said wherever apostles or apostle-like men are not involved. You don't have inerrancy. They, they were recognizing that we're not the, you know, perfect translators, which is why they say we give marginal notes because sometimes it describes a bird, but it doesn't tell what size he is and what he looks like. 
And so we don't know if that's an owl or maybe an ostrich, you know, judging by where it's at. And so they put one in the text and one in the margin. So a good cure for King James onlyism is to read the introduction to the King James Bible. They were fellows that did a good job translating the Bible in 1611. But as you said, Justin, it's difficult to read because they talketh like they did in 1611. It wasn't, right. that's not Jesus language. Uh, that's not God language. That's how people spoke in 1611. You know, if you went into a tavern or a brothel, you would have been speaking 1611 English as well. There's not something holy about putting TH on the ends of words. Uh, I'll, I'll show some stuff here about manuscripts, which ties into this, unless anybody has anything further to say about any of that or other points. Well, just, just on the point about um, it being an English that is difficult for us, every language changes over time. Even, even the, the Greek that's used in the Bible, we talk about Koine Greek, it's not classical Greek, it's a different kind of Greek. And so, you know, languages just, they, they words are defined by, by how they're used. And people use words differently today than they did back then. Um, a, a certain kind of sacrifice, you know, in the King James Version that refers to uh, grain offering might actually mean meat offering, just depends on the word there. Um, but it's just, some of the, the things that get used actually change the meaning depending on how you're using the word. And I just think it's helpful before we get into translations, First Corinthians 14, Paul in talking about the way that we speak to one another uh, about truth and about scripture. Yeah, he says in First Corinthians 14, 9, with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You'll be speaking into the air. Uh, if if I want to be understood, then I've got to use a language that people understand. And King James 1611 is going to be difficult to come by for most readers. Yeah, it is still a good Bible. And I don't mind teaching somebody out of King James. Uh, I prefer the King James over some modern paraphrases. And in a minute, maybe one of you guys can go over what a paraphrase is. Um, but a couple of examples. Uh, when they're bringing the little bitty children to Jesus and he's holding them and blessing them and the apostles go, no, 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 no. Uh, in the ESV or New American Standard, uh, Jesus says, you know, permit or allow, I don't whichever word it is, the little children to come. What does the King James say? Suffer the little children. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that can be kind of confusing. Um, also, one negative about the King James was they made a conscious decision for poetry effect, for literary effect, to not use the same word redundantly. So if Paul keeps using the same word, they get tired of that and they, they want to use the same. This is in their introduction. And they said this, they, you know, that they would choose to change it and translate it. But how many times in your Bible study have you noticed that it's helpful in a chapter, the word is used here and here and here and here. And see, Paul's making a point. But if you use a synonym here and here, might you miss some of that? 
And sometimes we're reading in the English, in the Greek, and we realize, hey, that's the same word as over here. Um, for instance, works. In Romans 2, we're going to be judged by our works. But in Romans 3, we are not redeemed or justified by our works. That's an important distinction. Um, the person that's not saved by grace will not survive judgment by works. But the person who all their evil works are taken away by the blood of Christ can be judged by his works. Um, and it's helpful, for instance, in the American standard, that it says works in both places. Uh, so where the King James will say charity sometimes for love. Uh, and it's the context is really better described as love. So it's not a perfect translation, but it's a good translation. Um, you you mentioned, Scott, and I'll just say this really quickly. Um, this is just one example. Maybe some of our listeners um, might use some different uh, versions of the Bible, um, and some of them might use uh, paraphrases. Um, and so we'll just talk really quickly about that. And one in particular, that's maybe the most common paraphrase that I, that I come across, um, which is the message Bible. And I want to just show this, um, and you can look this up as well. If you have a, a message Bible, you can go and, and look up the, um, the preface to the reader, uh, at the beginning of the message Bible. Um, the person who instructed it, he says pretty explicitly, uh, and the, one of the last paragraphs in the preface um, the message is a reading Bible. It is not intended to re uh, replace the excellent study Bibles that are available. Um, and he goes on in the, in the preface to explain kind of his process of how and why he wrote what he wrote. Um, but he'll go on to say that there are some uh, difficult things to understand in the Bible. There's much that's hard to understand. And so at some point along the way, soon or late, it will be important to get a standard study Bible to facilitate further study. Um, and he he says in his preface that he did what he did in writing the the message in a kind of contemporary way to make it more readable, more approachable. He says in that paragraph that he took out um, verse numbers. Um, so I, I leave out verse numbers to encourage unimpeded reading. And he uses a lot of common terminology, uh, contemporary types of language to, to word things. But he doesn't claim to do an accurate kind of word for word translation from the original languages into English. It's just an easy way for English speakers today in the United States to uh, kind of be introduced to the Bible. And so if you want to study the Bible, and know accurately the things that the original Bible authors wrote, um, the message is not intended for that. Um, it can be, in some ways, maybe helpful to get a very, very broad picture. Um, but if you want to know specifically what the scriptures say, what God has revealed to the apostles and other writers, it is not a translation to do that. And so if you're not aware of that, you can go and read that. This is this is online. You can look in the in the beginning of your of your message translation or your, your message Bible. Um, it doesn't claim to be an accurate translation talking about the deep, hard things to understand in the scriptures. So, In the Billy Graham edition of the Living Bible, this is back from, I don't know, 60s or 70s, uh, but I've got one, and it says at the beginning, it says, you know, a warning about paraphrases. It said, this is a paraphrase, not a translation. It points out a translation is where you're translating the author's words into another language. Uh, and it says in a paraphrase, you're putting in your words what you think the author was saying. And so I'll give two quick examples and we'll go to Justin. Um, 
it was done by people that were premillennialists. So guess what they did when the Greek said, truly, amen, lego, I say, who mean to you, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things be accomplished. Well, that's a problem for premillennialists. So guess what they made it say? Then at last, this age will come to a close. It doesn't begin with the amen. It doesn't begin with the lego. It doesn't begin with the humin. It doesn't say this generation will pass away. It, it, they say, then at last, this generation will come to an end. And when Peter yeah. says baptism does also now save us, the guy didn't believe that. And so he wrote something like, in baptism, we show that we've been saved. So it's not a translation. So yes, stay away from paraphrases, Justin. Yeah, that, I mean, when, some of that you can just do by reading a number of translations. When you read a number of translations and this one sticks out, you go, wait a minute, <laughs> why is that one so different? Uh, and that ought to be a red flag. Uh, and there's so many resources today, you can look up the, the Greek and the Hebrew, but we're talking about word for word uh, and literal translations. The King James is seeking to be more on the literal side. But I wonder, Scott, if you would talk a little bit about why we don't actually want a word-for-word -word translation. There's some amount of interpretation that has to happen, right? Because if we, if we took Hebrew and Greek and made them exactly word-for-word, -word, it would be weird, right? Yeah. So, for example, the article. Uh, most people know what a noun is and a verb is. A lot of people know what an article is. It's like the or a or an. And we use them all the time. You know, uh, the, this or that, a, this or that. Greek doesn't have an indefinite article, a or an. It just has definite articles uh, of feminine, masculine, or, 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 or neuter, which is a gender thing that we don't have in English. Um, and so... But they use the article a lot. Like it might say, the Mary said to the Jesus. You know, uh, but then, you know, if, if they got in a boat, if it didn't say the boat, they got in boat. You know, it, it's, you would sound like Tarzan some of the time. And you would sound like. Uh, you didn't know English. The other part of the time. <laughs> yeah. And so translators accommodate for the fact that they did articles differently than, than, than we do. Uh, and maybe some toward the end, maybe one of you could take a simple verse and show like on Blue Letter Bible, where you can look and see, oh, here are the Greek words and hear how they're translated. And what does it mean when this is something a number of good translations do, they'll put a word in italics. Let's just go ahead and answer that real quick. If you're reading in uh, of your Bible and your Bible uses italics and you get to italics, it, it, it mean that's emphasized. What, what does it actually mean? Yeah, it means that that word was not in the original language. Yeah. And the translators have put that in there to help bring, make it flow well and be understandable in English, but there's not actually a Greek word there for that. And that's very helpful. Of course, paraphrases don't do that. All right, so let's talk a bit about manuscripts because after the King James, the pilgrims didn't use King James, but by the 1800s, you know, most people in America are using a King James. You go to a church, the Pew Bible is a King James. You go to the a bookstore, you buy a Bible, it's 
I was going to be King James. Most everybody was using the King James Bible. <coughs> the English Standard Version, or the, or the English Revised Version, excuse me, came along because some older manuscripts were developed. And then that led to the, Ameri the American scholars that worked on that had an agreement that 20 years later they could do their American uh, preferences. Uh, and that's the American Standard of 1901, which is actually a top-notch translation. It's got some deficits. Because it's a revision of the King James, it still useth the 1611 uh, grammatical structures. So it doesn't flow as easily and as clearly. Um, and they're hard to find. But as far as translation, it's, it's top notch. Sometimes people call it the translator's translation. And then some more easy to read and good translations have come along. But a lot of people got quite upset because it wasn't the King James and they became very suspicious of the manuscripts involved. And uh, somebody gives us real briefly maybe the discovery of, well, actually we'll get on the slides here. So I'll pull those up unless anybody has a comment uh, before I get into this. And it says green sharing is paused. Let me try again. And that is not the one I want. <laughs> Let's, let us see if third time is the charm. If you can't get that up, I've got a slide that may be helpful. Wow. All right, go ahead and pull up what you've got there. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe this will be helpful here. <coughs> so this was, I don't know if this is kind of what you're getting at here, but you know, originally you had the autograph, right? Yeah. That, that's what like Matthew would have written this, uh, uh, John, you know, Samuel, Moses. This is when a, a prophet of God uh, an apostle actually took pen to paper, whether it was papyrus or vellum, uh, some kind of writing instrument, varying degrees of longevity to these. But that was the first time when the ink was wet on this. Um, and it wasn't always an inspired writer. Sometimes it was an inspired spokesman uh, like Paul and Tertullus. Um, I don't begin to understand how, how all that works, but you know, Paul's speaking and Tertullus is writing on behalf of Paul. Uh, what, what do you call that when you're uh, uh, when you're speaking to somebody else and they write down things it's for you? Wrong. You're dic dictating. Yeah, you know, you're dictating. Uh, so you got the original, but then what what we actually have now are these these pieces uh, uh, that are copies of these originals, and some of them are codices. You know, they're, they're whole book copies of the entirety of the Bible. Uh, but, but more often, it's scraps and fragments of, say, the Gospel of John, uh, or like here are three verses, and you might have two on one side and one on the other side, and it's just slivers and copies, but we, we put those in and we catalog those, uh, and, and scholars have record of those, and they refer to them in different ways, and it's from those that you kind of piece together, maybe you've got five or six different versions of one particular verse, and you sort of compile all that together into a, a critical text. That is, you've done the work to figure out 
what because you don't have the original anymore i mean as best i can tell you know, we don't have an original original copy of matthew anywhere but we can kind of reverse engineer and say by by the way that these manuscripts came about here's what the original would have said um and and i don't know with the king james version um some of the manuscripts that we have available today weren't available back in the 1600s right so the king james was based one of the things that was good about it was they didn't go from the latin uh like you'll see i'll show you in a minute um oh, who's the guy that did the printing press gutenberg when he did the printing press in 1400 for the first time you could print out a page of the bible and instead of having to hand write everything uh in his first bible it was uh he's not going back to the greek uh and a lot of bibles were translated from the latin the mm -hmm. james bible was translated from the greek they used stephanus's text stephanus text follows in a line from erasmus's text erasmus was one of the first guys to print a printed version after the printing press of the greek that the new testament is from so the scholars could actually see the greek uh, but erasmus only had access to about a dozen manuscripts and only really used about six and most of them were after a thousand a.d uh, i can't remember it's 1100 to 1200s or 11th century and 12th century uh but but that time era he's usually mostly using those six and he didn't have a copy of the end of revelation because his revelation manuscript was missing the last several verses so he did a, a, a logical thing he looked at the latin and back translated to try to recreate what the greek text might have been and i think he probably did a fairly good job but you know he's now that we have greek manuscripts we know that he didn't get it exact uh, but it was a big advancement. Um, but since then, we've got a lot more manuscripts, and the later ones are often very, very full. Some of the so is that is that Erasmus text then that that is referred to as like the Textus Receptus? It's the received text, and Act that's the version the that the King James is based off of. Excellent. Except it's actually Stephanus text some mm. years later. But Stephanus is re once Erasmus did his text, people kind of kind of like the American Standard is a reversion of the King James, and so it retains a lot of that. Uh, Erasmus's work, some of his work gets kept in all the way down to Stephanus, so it's kind of like a great grandchild of Erasmus's text. Okay, uh, but it's very much like. Let me just give you a quick story. Uh, there's a verse in the King James Bible in 1 John 5 that said these three agree in one, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, Catholics like that a lot when they're talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But and it was in the it was in the Latin Vulgate, but it's not in the Greek. So when Erasmus got to that, it wasn't in the Greek, so he didn't put it there and he published it. Guess how some of his fellow Catholic scholars reacted? As a heretic. Where's our where's where's our Trinity verse? You know, and, and uh -huh. he said, "Well, it's not in the Greek." And he made a rash promise. He said, "You show me one single Greek manuscript that has it, and I'll put it in the next edition." And they did. 
uh, it wasn't really very old. Uh, it may have been like a few weeks old. <laughs> a manuscript is a handwritten. It's Greek. <laughs> uh, so there's a couple of manuscripts from around that time uh, that have that verse there, but the old ones don't. But so, so that, that influences the critical text, right? That it, ended up in because based off of yeah, that so ended based up off in, what you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was in Stephanus's text, so it's in the King James Bible. Uh, so let's look at the discoveries that were happening. I think I've finally figured out my uh, problem here. Um, there we go. Got the right one now. All right. So on the right, we have um, Gutenberg's Bible. And that's just, it's not that these manuscripts are related to that, because that was not an English translation of a Greek text at all. But that's just marking the fact that, that the fact that when you do get a printing press, you do get a printed Bible. But before that, we have manuscripts. Um, Wycliffe did English manuscripts from Latin manuscripts, but we want to talk about the Greek. Well, the Byzantine, they're sometimes called the majority text, sometimes called the manuscripts of maybe the received text, sometimes referred to as Byzantine texts. And as Erasmus had about half a dozen, and today there's tons of them uh, in their manuscripts. In a manuscript, uh, they're written like from the ninth century and later generally, and they had manuscripts of the Bible plus lectionaries. Lectionaries were uh, books composed of collections of scriptures, like for a reading in a church building. Uh, but here is a, a uh, minuscule manuscript. Notice how it looks. See how it looks kind of, it's very professionally done. And see how it looks kind of like lowercase cursive of Greek? Mm -hmm. That's the writing style. Writing style is really important here. Let me illustrate how. Um, have you guys, do you guys ever peruse old bookstores looking for old books? You, you guys are a younger generation than me, so you might not have done that much. But if either, either of you have, uh, say so, and I have a question for you. Sure. All right. Have you noticed that you can tell kind of what decade a book is written by the font? Like a book from the 1970s, you can, from the binding, kind of tell, eh, that's probably late 60s or 70s, just from the fonts. Uh, it's kind of like on the internet, you know, if something's in Comic Sans, that was probably from the, not the last few years. Um, and if, can, if a book from the 1920s looks very different than a 1970s book, and a book from the 1700s, the fonts are very different than than the style from 1920s, right? And writing right. is like that as well. So this is what the minuscules look like. Um, here is uh, the Gospel of Luke on the left-hand side. So the, according to Luke of Evangelion. So that's the Gospel of Luke. Can y'all see my little pointer up there? Mm -hmm. Okay. And over here, this is a lectionary from about the 12th century. 
And this is 237 things for daily readings. And so this happens to be part of the Sermon on the Mount. So we've got a lot of these now. We've got 3,000 roughly <coughs> of these minuscules. We've got about 2,500 of the lectionaries. So together, that's like you got over 5,000 manuscripts right there. That's why it's called the majority text, because most of our manuscripts are from this time period. But Constantine uh, Tischendorf, and by the way, what time is it? I don't want to go too long. 2.37. Okay, all right. I'll kind of, it's a dude looking for manuscripts back in the mid-1800s. And he comes to this valley in the Middle East, to this old monastery, and he finds Codex Sinaiticus. And some leaves uh, from the Septuagint he found in like a place where they were going to use it for tinder for the fire. The main codex that we call Codex Sinaiticus is not in that. Sometimes people disparage this by he found it in the trash to act like it's trash. The monks didn't know what they had, but he saw ancient writing there. He looked at it and he saw, hey, this is part of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He keeps coming back to the monastery and manages to find a monk who says, oh, I've got a copy of it too in my room. And he chose him behind a little curtain. And there is a book, not a scroll, a bound book. And it's got, along with some other writings, the entire New Testament. From about 325, or maybe a little bit later, 350 AD. And it's in excellent condition. And you can look at it online. Go to Codex Sinaiticus at the British Museum in uh, uh and I might not be pronouncing it right. This is one of those words I always see, but don't listen to hear it pronounced. And uh, it's in magnificent condition. And it dates from around 330 to 360 AD. That's huge because our other manuscripts are mostly later than 1000 AD. To jump back to 700 years, that's fantastic. Some of them are not as in good condition, but are even older. So instead of 330, 350, 360, wow, here's a codex from 200 AD. But now as we get older, we get to, as Justin described, some of them are kind of scraps, but the majority are later ones, not scraps. Um, so there is X5 in a codex from about 200. Codex Sinaiticus is uh, in much better condition. We've got about 300 of these. Then in eight, late 1890s, they found a third type of manuscript, even older. And what's the name of that? It had to do with the material. The, the papyri. Oh, yeah. Right. The John Ryland's papyri? It, that's one of them. But there's a bunch. We've got about 100 or so of these. Uh, some are very fragmentary, like this, which is that little fragment, the John Ryland's uh, Papyri 52, which is part of the Gospel of John, and it's from as early as 125 AD. And keep in mind, John wrote, wrote late in later in the second in the first century, so this is not that much later after John wrote it, up to maybe 175. Here is uh, P75, um, which is uh, Luke and part of John. There, see, there's the end of Luke. And then here begins John. And this is from about the same time period as well. Well, we've got about 
uh, and they're from as early as the second century. And we've got about 139 of those. So one argument that King James only people will say, this is the majority text. Well, yeah, if you're making copies of ancient things, the more copies are made as time goes by, you end up with more copies like this, but it doesn't mean that later is more valuable than earlier. Uh, and sometimes when people criticize going back to older manuscripts, they'll say, oh, it was these two manuscripts, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus or Sinaiticus, and uh, they'll try to disparage those two. No, there's hundreds. Uh, and there's value in going back and looking at these. Comments or thoughts there? So, so with this, what you're saying is that the King James translation, good translation, <laughs> there's a translation that's that's really working off of only a limited amount of exactly. manuscripts that we have available today, which is why uh, I'm looking at Acts chapter eight, and I grew up reading the New King James, um, and you get to Acts eight verse thirty six, um, Philip and the eunuch are going along in the chariot. They come to water and the eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents him from being baptized? And my good old New King James said, uh, if, you know, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And I love that verse. It's not in my ESV. It's uh, not, it's not in, in a lot of newer translations. Yeah. It's not in the older manuscripts. Sometimes, too, in the Gospels, you'll see this a lot. Um, you're reading King James, and this, there's this little phrase in the gospel, and you're reading New Translation, it's not there. You think, oh, what happened? It was in Mark. It's in all the copies of Mark, but a scribe inserted into the Matthew text later, and so it shows up there. Like one time, there was a very bad, uh, bad, bad article written by a preacher attacking one of the more modern translations. It actually deserves some attack because it was done by Calvinists, and their bias came through. That's the NIV. It's... Sometimes pretty good, but it's it's not all that tight. And it does have some bias in it. But he attacked it for the wrong reasons. He, he said, for example, they took out uh, Jesus X number of times. And they took out, it's hard for you to kick against the goats in Acts 9. Well, Paul's conversion is recorded three times in Acts. In the King James, in the third version, it says kick against goads. It hardly would kick against goads. And in the, and in the first one, Acts 9, it has it. But no Greek manuscript has that in Acts 9. None. Zero. So, so what happened is you had scribes who said, they must have forgotten something here. And they went to, you know, good-heartedly, they're, they're trying to be helpful, but they insert it where it doesn't belong. Yeah. The minuscule Byzantine after 1000 AD texts tend to be fuller. Like, why did they take Jesus out of the Bible sometimes? Because if you're a scribe and you've got a verse that says, and the Lord, and another one says, and the Lord Jesus, and another one says, Jesus Christ. All good stuff, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know. <laughs> and so it tends to go fuller over time. When you look at the old manuscript. Sometimes the old ones just said, and the Lord, it didn't in, in the name of the Lord. It didn't say in the name of the Lord Jesus. But later somebody filled that in. Um, and so then you don't put that. But to say new translators are trying to take Jesus out of the Bible is kind of silly because if they had been trying to take Jesus out of the Bible. He's kind of all over the first four books of the New Testament anyway. Um, it's so, a, it, 
Go ahead. So, so the King James only, if, if I thought, I'm looking at my Bible and I see verse 35, 36, 38, and I'm thinking, oh, they took a verse out of my Bible. Really, it's not that they took a verse out. It's that later manuscripts added information. Yeah. 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 And now as we have more information. Yeah. Yeah. And often okay. it was from another verse. Now, that's not the case in, in Acts 8, although there are other verses about confession, but there's not another account of Philip in the eunuch. Uh, but lots of the additional verses or phrases are in the Gospels, borrowing from others of the Gospels. There's a lot of that. Uh, and so when this fellow wrote this article, it said, they took, it's hard for you to kick against the goats out of Acts 9. Another fellow wrote in and said, it's not in a single Greek manuscript. And the fellow should have apologized for writing such a terrible article. But he said, well, it's in Acts 26, so we know it's inspired. The translation he was attacking had it in Acts 26. It just didn't have it in Acts 9. Because when Luke wrote it, he put that in Acts 26, but he didn't put it in Acts 9. That was said. So if, we, if, if we're looking at translations today, then, and we have access, I mean, in English, we've got just a multitude of good translations, but but all of them have their weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, I use ESV a lot. So for example, I was, I was looking at what are some weaknesses of the ESV? Um, Proverbs 30, verse 26. I don't know if you call it a weakness or not, but it refers to uh, ants and badgers as being people. You know, this is kind of a funny thing. Like, they're not a numerous people. They're not a strong and mighty people. And someone would laugh and go, well, they're not a people at all. They're creatures. And they're just little things like that. Or like um, one, one in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. Uh, the ESV holds on to the King James, the gates of hell, which is, if you look at the Greek, it's a different word, hell versus Hades. So, so you know, even a good translation like the ESV is going to have some little, little weaknesses. Um, what, what are some guidelines, uh, Scott and Jonathan, that, that we should maybe employ when we're trying to choose good translations for reading, for studying, for teaching? How should we go about looking at the great number of translations? Um, well, let me let me first comment on that text. I don't think the ESV did a bad job there, probably. Uh, and here's why. Here's a way that you can easily check this. Uh, this is Blue Letter Bible, which is free on the internet. And if we go to that text, the Hebrew word, which is Strong's H5971, am, am. Okay. Second uh, entry. All right. Um, okay. Um, the King James translates that word over 1,800 times people, 17 times nation, and uh, sometimes uh, combined with another word with people, and sometimes folk. Uh, so it's men, folk, a nation, e people. And right. if you look at that text, here it is in the Hebrew. Uh, the rock badges are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. And so they are a people. So it's poetically, 
comparison. Right. It, right. You call the anthropomorphic, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, but the ESP is, is sometimes not as good as another translation. Although I like you, I, I like it. I, I recommend it because it's it's a translation. It's usually done well, and it includes the evidence from the the, the older manuscripts. Um, I want we're over time, but I want to get this in real quick. One simple way to illustrate that there's an advantage to looking at older manuscripts is Psalm 145. So let me get Psalm 145 up here. Um, all right. And I'm sorry for being over time, and I will try to get my mouth closed here quickly. Okay. We talked about going short today, and I'm the one at fault here for making this long. All right, this is an acrostic psalm. It's not like Psalm 119 where it shows it in our Bible that's acrostic in whole sections. But each verse, this verse 1 begins with uh, an Ela and then a Beth and then a gamma, et cetera. I might have mispronounced the second one wrong, but it goes through like acrostics. So like if, you, if you're reading a book to a little kid, A is for apple, B is for bear, you know, T is for cat, D is for dog, except there's an interesting thing about this psalm. In the King James, um, it has 21 verses, but guess how many letters there are in Hebrew? 22. 22. It's missing the inverse in Hebrew, none. Uh, so if you've got that little kid's book, you find at a yard sale and, you know, L is for lion, M is for monkey, O is for octopus. <laughs> you might think there's a page missing. And back in the third century, one of the rabbis explained his view of why it was missing the inverse. Because there's a negative word, fallen, in Hebrew begins with in. And this was a positive psalm. And so David didn't want to use an in verse because the word fallen is a negative word and it begins with in. I think that's not probably what's going on here. <laughs> uh, but guess what? The Septuagint, which we've got, I've seen right in front of my face, a few inches from me, that a, a, a museum person was holding a co handwritten copy of the Septuagint from about 500 AD. Now remember, King James was based on things after 1000 AD, mostly. He had one earlier manuscript that he didn't really didn't use much, according to base. But uh, the Septuagint has the inverse, except it's not an in in Hebrew because it's in Greek, but there's an extra verse there. And guess what? When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, among the Dead Sea Scrolls were also biblical scrolls, including this psalm. And guess what? There's an inverse. Mm -hmm. Over a thousand years older than a lot of these other manuscripts, and it has it. And so a lot of our Bibles now have <coughs> the inverse combined into verse 13. All right, I've gone too long. I'm going to be quiet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll just say this too. While we're wrapping up, and if there's anything else you guys want to say, um, a helpful thing to do is to 
maybe in your Bible reading supplement with multiple translations um, that have different translation philosophies. And that's a helpful thing to do, just reading the preface of your Bible to see in what way was this Bible translated. Uh, if I remember right, and you guys can correct me on what the different translation philosophies are actually called, the ESV has a different philosophy than the New American Standard. Um, they're both good translations. They're both accurate. They're both based on older manuscripts, but they have different translation philosophies, so they'll read differently um, as, as you're reading them. Um, and that can be helpful to get a, a fuller picture, a better understanding of, of what the original text would have, would have said. Yeah, I think that there are a number of different, it's not just a spectrum, right? There are a number of different philosophies, but kind of, if you were to put it on a spectrum, at one end, you've got word for word literal. You know, every word in the Hebrew, you've got a word in the English, every word in the Greek, word in the English. And again, that can be challenging. Uh, for example, if you were to, if you were to read Genesis chapter two, verse 24, word for word, Hebrew to English, uh, for this, he will leave man, father of him, and mother of him, and he will unite to wife of him, and they will be as flesh, one. I mean, it's a little tough, right? <laughs> I mean, I, you, can, you can get to it, but it's tricky. At the other extreme is the, the idiomatic or the dynamic kind of translation, which is uh, everything is put into modern language. And the that's good to some extent because we want to we want to understand what those things mean in modern application but the further you get away from word for word the more you're having to lean on human interpretation every translation has some kind of human interpretation but if, but we want to lean more and more on god's word i found this quote that was helpful we want translations to be as literal as possible and as idiomatic as necessary in other words get them as close to the original as possible with as, as only as much uh, interpretation as is necessary to get, get it intelligible. Uh, and that, that's helpful. So I, I agree with the using multiple translations. Uh, at the end of the day, I, just, I thank God and his providence that he has preserved his word and made it accessible to us in our language. Um, we, we need to read it. We've got so much access to it today. Um, I don't, I don't want to quibble over which translation is the best translation. I've heard the best translation is the one you read. Uh, just make sure you read it and put it in practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll just say this as well. Um, put a plug in for a podcast that I think is really helpful. Um, there's a podcast if you're interested in listening to called Can I Trust My Bible uh, by Tim Bunting. Uh, it's available on most podcast providing uh, websites. Uh, and Tim does a really good job of going through the process of textual criticism and looking at different manuscripts and evaluating different uh, translations. It's a helpful podcast if you got some time. Some of them are pretty lengthy episodes, but worth worth a listen if you're really interested in understanding which translations that you should you should be affiliating yourself with. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're over time. We thought there was going to be not very much to say, but there's obviously a lot to talk about with this with this subject. Um, so, if you have more questions that you'd like us to discuss or answer more specifically about Bible translations, about manuscripts, or or textual criticism, we'd ha be happy to do that on our show. Uh, you can submit those questions or those comments to us at BibleQuest.tv, and we can revisit the subject in the future if we need to. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for your time this afternoon. And that's all we have for this week. So we'll plan on seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.